1 Samuel chapter 24. While you're turning there, let me just uh, mention uh, by way of reminder that this afternoon at 5 p.m. Uh, there is a ladies refresh activity at the Tesoro Escondido Ranch. The address is in your bulletin. Uh, I know that some of you uh, would like a ride uh, out to the ranch, and if that would be a help to you, uh, we'll be meeting here at 4.30, and I'll, I'll drive one of the people mover buses, and uh, we can fit, I think, 13 or 14. I'm not exactly sure how many fit in there, but uh, if you need a ride, please be here on the church campus at 4.30 p.m. this afternoon. All right, we'll be in First Samuel, sorry, First Samuel chapter 24. Our sermon text today spans all of chapters 23 and 24, uh, but we'll read just a portion of that text for the sake of time. Let's begin reading in chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day... Your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, 
Father, this morning we uh, are just grateful to be able to freely gather in the presence of your saints and open up your word that we have in our own heart's language that we can understand, we can study, and we can mine the depths of your truth together and, and even on our own. Uh, what a gift it is to know you through the revelation that you've given in the scriptures. Lord, we're mindful this morning that there are many, many millions in this world who do not have this privilege. Whether it's because the government in their country tries to stifle the preaching of the gospel, whether it's because they do not have a copy of the Bible in their language, whether it's because they just don't know because they're hard to get to, they don't even have the chance to know about the Lord Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice on the cross. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would send forth laborers into your harvest, that you would raise them up even from among our midst, and that you would tell that you would guide us and, and lead us to abandon the love of the world in order that we might support our love for the lost. And so, Father, when we think about the great needs that are out there, and then we look at the things that we worry about, whether or not we're going to uh, go on vacation this year, or uh, whether we'll be able to afford the furniture that we want to buy, or even get the kids braces, and even the things that we consider normal and basic needs, Father, they really do pale in comparison with the great needs of our world. And So, Father, I pray you give us perspective this morning and help us to live in light of eternity. Lord, as we turn our hearts toward this text and we see what kind of king the people demanded, what kind of king you provided, and what kind of king we need. And we see that your king passes the test. I pray that you would lead us from our hearts to step down off the throne of our lives and say, Jesus, this throne belongs to you this morning. I pray that your spirit would work and move in spite of our weakness and in spite of our inability to move uh, without you, I pray that you would move in this room and that you would transform lives through the preaching of your word. Father, remove distractions and rebuke the enemy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us would probably agree that the series of feature films that make up the Marvel Cinematic Universe aren't exactly high culture. We enjoy them just because they're fun to watch, or at least the first few years of those movies were fun to watch. But they are not exactly on the same level as a Beethoven symphony or a Da Vinci painting or even Huckleberry Finn. And yet, there are some really powerful, truly inspiring moments that almost catch you by surprise when you're watching some of these films. I'm assuming many of you have watched uh, some of these Marvel movies, for example, in the 2011 film Captain America, and by the way, there's some spoilers in here, so if you haven't seen it by now, you know, just plug your ears. But in the 2011 film Captain America, we're introduced to a scrawny young man by the name of Steve Rogers, played by actor Chris Evans. Rogers had a remarkably puny body, but a, an iron courage. 
He stood up to bullies and got beat up in an alley. He applied and, 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 and uh, tried to enlist in the army multiple times under different aliases, but he was denied each time due to his physical weakness. Well, finally, he encounters a military doctor who actually sees something that nobody else can see, and he thinks, hey, this is a a young man who would be the perfect candidate for a top-secret government program, a program designed to create super soldiers. Now, to us, we would think, hey, that's ridiculous. If you want to create a super soldier, you want the most athletic, the physically dominant, the elite, the guys who seem like they're born for it, not the puny guy at the recruiting station. But Steve ends up joining the program, and of course, he's unable to keep up. He's an embarrassment. Everybody thinks the doctor is crazy. But finally, in a moment of frustration, the officer in charge of this super soldier program, Colonel Chester Phillips, tosses a dummy grenade in the midst of a group of soldiers. The men react instinctively. They, that's all they have time to do. And you can see their athleticism as they bound out of the way and run for cover. But one man responds differently. When faced with an opportunity to save others and to sacrifice himself, Steve Rogers doesn't even need to think. He immediately dives on the grenade, covers it with his body in hopes that the shrapnel will be absorbed by his torso, and he, is, he faces certain death, destroying himself but saving everybody else. Now, of course, he didn't know it was a dummy grenade. At that moment, the colonel and everybody else can now see what the doctor had seen. Rogers was indeed uniquely qualified. After failing dozens of tests that didn't matter, he had been the one recruit to pass the only test that did matter, the test of character. In literature and film, as in life, our heroes, before they might hope to succeed in their hero's quest, they need to go through a hero's test. And the test of a true hero is not the test of might or of mind, of strength, but of heart. See, even the villains in these stories are are mighty and wise and cunning. That's not enough. The true test of a true hero is a test of character. And the greater the endeavor, the more this is the case. Now, if that's true of a fictional super soldier, how much more so the ruler of a nation How much more so a king? How much more God's king, the ruler of God's people? In our passage today, which, as I said before, spans all of chapters 23 and 24, the character of God's king is going to be tested. It's a test that's split into three parts with a total of five questions. And if you uh, have taken a test before, you know that those are the hardest kind, right? The test with fewer questions. And as you might expect, David passes the test, and in doing so, he exposes the deficiencies of the kings and the kingdoms of this world, and he points us to our own deficiencies when we try to rule ourselves, and then ultimately, he points us to the greatness and the goodness of his heir, the greatest king of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is go back over this test section by section, question by question, and see... The, the testing of God's king. Notice with me in the first place, section one, the Keila test uh, from chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. Now, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that name wrong, Keila. That's just how I uh, read it. 
but the Keilah test. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. What Keilah, what's that? Keilah is the small relatively insignificant border town on the border between Judah and Philistia. And apparently, it's harvest time. All their work over the last several months, plowing, the planting, the cultivating, it's led them to this moment, and their threshing floors are stacked high with grain that's ready to be processed and stored against the cold of winter. Well, the Philistines saw their chance, a chance That would mean riches and spoil for them and a slow, starving death for these poor villagers. Now, remember, at this point in the story, David has about 400 men with him, malcontents, debtors, vagabonds. According to chapter 23, verse 3, these men that are with with David, they're already afraid for their lives. They say to David, hey, David, we're afraid even living here in Judah, and you want to take us all the way out to the border? To fight the Philistines? No way. So here's question number one for God's anointed king. Will he risk his life for God's people? Will he go along with the safe advice of his trusted counselors and say, well, I wish there was something I could do? Or will he take his own safety and lay it on the line in order to selflessly rescue the people of God from their murderous enemies? Well, what does David do? Here's what you would expect at best. You would expect David at best to go to the inhabitants of Keilah and make some sort of deal. Say something like, hey, if you guys will pledge loyalty to me, or maybe if you'll give me some money, I'll save you from your enemies. But that's not what David does. In fact, later on in this passage, we won't take the time to read it. But the the inhabitants of Keilah, David is able to learn that they're about to betray him to Saul. David finds out that they're going to betray him. They aren't going to give him anything. They aren't going to be loyal to him. They don't have anything he wants or needs. And yet, what does David do? He just rescues them. He saves the inhabitants of Keilah out of kindness and loyal love and out of obedience to God. So yes, David is willing to risk his life in order to rescue the people of God. By the way, where's Saul in the middle of this Keilah incident? Remember, this is Saul's job. What did the Israelites demand of their king? That he would be a kind of king that would go out before them and fight their battles. And yet, where's Saul? He's chasing David around the countryside, trying to kill a political enemy while his people suffer. Saul fails the test. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know a lot of leaders who would do the sort of thing that David does here in this passage? I mean, think about, just in our nation, think about our politicians. We're coming up on election season. Think of any politician in in your mind's eye. Do you really think that any of our politicians would risk their lives to serve a constituency that they know is going to vote against them in the next election? Like, here's a nominee for the Senate, let's say, and her policies and her reputation make it extremely unlikely that she's going to be, that she's going to win a certain county or precinct. And two weeks before the election, they have a disaster. 
Do you really think she's going to cancel appointments where she can legitimately expect to earn votes in order to pass out water or MREs to the people who are going around, uh, who, who are going to turn around in the next election and vote against her in that election? No way. I'll tell you this, if I were in her shoes, I wouldn't do it either. If I were running for office, and, and thank the Lord I'm not, I, I wouldn't be going after that type of service, I want to win. It would be very easy for me to tell myself, hey, when you win, you can help even more people. So you focus on getting those votes. That would be pretty reasonable for us. But friends, what, what would our nation be like if our leaders were like David? If our leaders were the kind of people who would be willing to actually not only risk their schedule, but their own life in order to serve people who, are, who don't care about them? How would it transform our society? How would it bring justice and healing to the hurting? You say, well, that sure would be nice, but that's not going to happen. Even I wouldn't do that. And friends, that is the whole point. In fact, let's be honest, even the people that are closest to us aren't going to be that selfless. Like, you might be working for a really good boss, but... Your boss isn't going to do what David does here in this passage. You might have a really nice boyfriend, and it might seem like he would do anything for you, but when the chips are down and you really need him, and you're setting, you're setting yourself up for a huge disappointment, and you're setting him up for, uh, for failure, because most of us would not pass the test. But when God's king was put to the test, he actually laid down his life out of loyal love to his people. He did what none of us would ever do. That's the kind of king God's king is. And what David does is just a glimpse of what God's greater king is going to do centuries later. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 5. He says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like we are like that village on the border between Judah and Philistia. We're like Keilah. We're not righteous men and women. I could see someone laying down their life for a righteous person, but that's not who we are, friends. No, we are like the ungrateful wretches in that village, but for some reason, because of his love, because of his goodness, not because of our deserts, Jesus laid down his life for us. You see, in the thinking of the world, power is evil. Power corrupts. Powerful people don't give up their power for the undeserving or the desperate. They don't sacrifice themselves and then get nothing in return. But the most powerful king ever to exist gave his life so that rebels might be rescued from the enemy. That's God's king. He passes the test. You know, a company of Philistine soldiers coming to take away, listen, it, 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 it is nothing like the situation that you and I find ourselves in before Christ comes and finds us. A summer with an empty belly, or a winter with an empty belly is nothing like the desperate need that we have for a Savior. We've taken the image of God and we say, hey, this is my body. <laughs> it's not yours. No, thank you, God. I'm not going to live for your glory. I'm going to live for me instead of living the way that I was designed and created to live. We are way worse off than some frontier village in the ancient Near East. But, but King Jesus came when we were weak, when we were sinners, and he loved us, and he laid down his life so that we could be forgiven. So here's my point, friends. 
You can't trust King Saul, and you cannot trust yourself to be your king, but you can trust God's king. That's a king you can trust. Somebody who passes the test, who's willing to lay down his life for the people of God. Now, there's a second question David has to answer in the Keilah section of the test. Here it is, question number two. How is God's king going to make decisions? How is God's king going to make decisions? I don't want to skip over how this whole thing started. Look at verse 2 of chapter 23. David what? What did he do? How did he begin? David inquired of the Lord. David seeks the will of God every step along the way. Should we save the city? Should we leave the city? What do you want, God? But then look at, look at Saul. Look at verse 7. What does Saul do? Does he inquire of the Lord? Verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Wait a second. What are you talking about, Saul? God gave him into your hand? Is that what God told you? Like, really? How do you know that, Saul? You see, both Saul and David are going to have the, they're, they're going to have to answer the same test question here. How is God's king going to make decisions? David, on the one hand, decides, I want to know what God's will is. I want to know what God wants me to do. Saul, he doesn't care about seeking God's will. He just assumes God's will. You ever meet anybody like that, that assumes the will of the Lord? Uh, if you trade places with any pastor for a week or two, you will meet a lot of people like that. Here's what I mean. Uh, pastors, sometimes we make people feel uncomfortable. You know, you, you aren't sure what to say. And so you default toward making everything sound really spiritual, right? Uh, like, for example, let's say you go out and you decide to buy a new car. It's nice and shiny. You like the way it looks. You've kind of had your eye on this car for a while, and you finally take the plunge. You buy the new car. You love it. You love the wind in your hair as you're driving down the street. But then on Sunday, you pull into the church parking lot, and your, your heart begins to kind of whisper, well, what are these people going to think? What are the church people going to think? What's the pastor going to think? Is he going to judge me for this new car that I spent my money and splurged? And so the pastor comes up, and he just out of making conversation, out of a desire to just show interest in your life, he says, hey, I saw you got a new car. And then what do you say? You say, yes, it was a God thing. <laughs> you know, what a blessing it was. Like, it's just amazing how God put it all together. And, and you know, and your pastor knows that you don't know whether it was a God thing or not. You didn't care. You didn't think about whether it was a God thing when you actually signed the papers and bought the car. What are you doing? You're, listen, I, and by the way, if you have a new car, it's fine, okay? <laughs> but the, here's the issue. We, instead of seeking God's will, we just presume on God's will. We assume we know God's will. We assume that what God's will is is what we want, and, and when we do that, we're doing exactly what Saul's doing. You're just assuming whatever you want just happens to be the will of God. Now, it might cause you a little bit of pain financially when, it, when it's a matter of a new car. But we do this with all kinds of things, many that are much, much more serious than a new car. 
And we can even convince ourselves that we're, we're, we're being very spiritual along the way just because of the spiritual-sounding language that we use. Like, hey, I know signing my daughter up for this team is going to mean we'll miss church for the next two months, and I guess we won't be able to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and send IMB missionaries to the field because I'll have to pay for all the hotels and all the, all the uh, restaurant food. But, you know, we prayed about it, and I really think that this is God's will for us. Maybe, but maybe not. Or, Pastor, guess what? My son just got accepted to this school that he really wanted to get into. He's so, we're so proud. We just knew God had worked it out for us. Yeah, I sure hope he doesn't lose his faith. We really hadn't thought about that when he goes off to school. Maybe God's will is for him to go to that school. I don't know. Did you ask the Lord? Hey, pastor, I have some bittersweet news. I just got a job in another city, and, you know, we hate to leave, but this is my dream job. I've already accepted. I put in my notice. We found an apartment to rent. We'll be putting our house up for sale next week. Just thought you should know. Oh, by the way, do you know of any good churches in that city? You're waiting till now to ask that question? See, folks, you might think I'm being a little hard on you, but this is my point. Most of us, if we read through 1 Samuel, would agree Saul is not a great king. And this is one of the reasons why. Because instead of seeking the will of God, he just assumes that what he wants is already God's will. And when we do that, here's what we would say. We would say, you know what, the best thing for me would be to be the king of my own life, to be in charge of me. And yet we are the same type of king as Saul is. We just assume we know what God wants. But friends, that's not how God's king does it. It's not what David does, and it's not what David's son does. Jesus would be better qualified than anybody uh, to just do whatever he wants to do, right? He's the son of God, and yet listen to what he says in John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own authority. John chapter 5, verse 30, I do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I know in order to understand that, we have to wade into some really deep Christological waters, and even then it's impossible to comprehensively grasp this idea that the Son of God would seek the will of his Father. But remember that Jesus is fully human. And as the human king, as the new Adam, Jesus shows us what a trustworthy king is like. How do I know whether this king is qualified to lead? How does he make decisions? Does he seek the will of the Father? And the answer in David's case is yes. The answer in Jesus' case is yes. That's the kind of king I want to follow. So David passes the Keilah test. He learns, though, through prayer, that when he's there in Keilah, Saul is hot on his tail. Some, excuse me, somebody's tipped off Saul. And so he realizes, if I stay put, uh, I'm going to be dead meat. And so David and his men, he gathers them together, and they head out into the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, this is just a, a barren region within the province of, of Judah, and that's where David's test enters its second section. So we've seen David pass the Keilah test, but now in chapter 23, verses 14 through 28, David has to face the Ziph test. Uh, David leaves Keilah. He goes into the wilderness of Ziph. This must have been a really low point in his life. 
really discouraging. He's now got 600 men with him. Uh, apparently some people who were living in Keilah uh, were enamored with King David. They realized this is God's king, and so they threw in their lot with him. And then notice in verse 13 of chapter 23, we're told that they went wherever they could go. Uh, think about that phrase. They went wherever they could go. Uh, the sense is basically there weren't very many spots left for David to go. Only the roughest, most hostile country would protect him from King Saul. And so uh, we, we see these phrases repeated over and over again. He's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness of Ziph. He's by the rock of escape. He's in the strongholds. Those are basically the, the cliffs and the crevasses. This wilderness, that wilderness. Here's the one question David's going to need to answer while wandering around the wilderness of Ziph. Where is God's king going to get encouragement in a situation like that? Where David's isolated. He's about to be betrayed again. Where is he going to get encouragement when he's wandering in the wilderness? Now, before I answer that, let me just point out what Saul finds encouraging. How does Saul receive encouragement. Saul relies on his network of spies, and one day, uh, the desert dwellers of Ziph, uh, they reach out to Saul, and they tell him, hey, Saul, David's hiding near us. They don't want to end up like the priests from the last chapter. And look at what Saul says in verse 21 of chapter 23. Talking to these uh, spies, he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. So what encourages Saul? The prospect of murder and manipulation and intrigue and intimidation. He's in a good mood when he thinks he's getting close to killing David. Compare that with David. David's in Ziph. He's discouraged. And then his friend Jonathan shows up. And we're told in verse 16 uh, of chapter 23, Jonathan, what does he do? In, in verse 16, Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. So David's there. He's discouraged. And, and how does he find encouragement when he is wandering through the wilderness, when he's isolated and alone? He encouraged himself in the Lord. He's reminded of God's promises, and he renews his trust in the covenant-keeping God. This is a test, and David passes when he is alone, when he is discouraged and destitute and desperate. Where will he find encouragement in the promises of God? And for that reason, he is a worthy king. Folks, this is one of the reasons why we need a king who's been tempted and tested in all the ways that we are. Because when we face discouragement and shame and isolation and uncertainty, what are we tempted to do? We search for encouragement outside the will of God, don't we? Like, how do you find encouragement when you're desperate? Isn't it true that sometimes, way too often, there are these obvious, unhealthy ways that we deal with this sort of thing? Like you can spend your evenings drinking alcohol or your weekends high on drugs. You can get a little carried away with retail therapy and click add to cart one too many times until the checking account is empty and the credit cards are maxed. You can eat ungodly amounts of food. You can escape into pornography or filthy novels. What are we doing? We're trying, to, we're trying to find a way to medicate ourselves against the discouragement and the isolation and the disappointments and the pain of life. Most of you have found a, a, an outlet that may be a little more respectable, uh, respectable 
than the things I just listed. Like your home from work and the chores you can't ignore are basically done. And you're sitting there and you're just trying to find some peace. But the TV has to be on. Or your phone has to be in your hand or you just can't cope. Like you can't even sit through a church service, some of you, right? Without checking social media. What does that show about us? What's going on with us? Here's what we're doing. We're injecting a little bit of Novocaine into the pain of an empty heart, friends. Like, I am feeling pain, and I don't know what to do, so I would rather feel nothing. When we're still, when there's nothing going on, the gaping emptiness looms, the dread creeps out of the shadows, the anxiety begins to simmer up, and we have absolutely lost the ability to take ourselves in hand and say, no, you are not going to think about those things. You are going to think about the truth of the word of God, and you're going to believe in his promises, right? But one of the things that you need to know is that all of that pain that normal people like you and me face, Jesus felt all of it, friends. Like he went through everything that we're facing. Like 30 plus years of quiet, lonely nights. Grief over the passing of his adoptive father. A, a, a body racked with pain. I mean, he's a carpenter. A sick or suffering friend, the hurt of betrayal. I mean, all of this, Jesus has felt it. And don't you think any of those things kept him up at night? But what we find when we encounter King Jesus is that when he faced isolation and discouragement and distress, he didn't go to all the things that we'd be, we'd be tempted to go to. He committed himself to his Father. Even when, there were even when there were shortcuts, even when the way forward was bleak and filled with suffering, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. What I'm saying, friends, is if you put yourself to the test, you're going to fail. But you can put God's king to the test. And if you ask, what does he do when he's discouraged? The answer is clear. He finds encouragement in the Father. And therefore, he's willing or he's uh, worthy of our trust. So David escapes Saul's clutches. He passes the Keilah test. The Lord rescues him from Saul. Uh, and he passes the Ziph test. And then he travels at the end of chapter 23 eastward to an oasis near the Dead Sea to a spot that many visitors have, even down to this very day, gone to see. How many of you have been to En Gedi? Anybody in here been to En Gedi? A couple people. Beautiful place, I'm told. I've never been there. But that's the third section of David's test from chapter 23, 29 through chapter 24, 22. The En Gedi test. Now, at the time, this text that we read earlier in the service, this must have been a really serious moment in David's life, but I'm sure that years later he must have laughed a little bit, thinking about what takes place. The irony. There's David. He and his men are being just hunted down like animals, and they're hiding in the deep recesses of a cave and they're trying to be still, and they're trying to be quiet, and then all of a sudden at the mouth of the cave, they hear the crunch, crunch, crunch of the gravel. Somebody's walking into the cave, and they think, oh, great, this is it. They found us. And so they wait, and they've got their swords out, and they're ready to fight their way out. But then the noise stops, and they think, what? 
And finally their curiosity gets the better of them and they peek around the corner and there's just one guy there and he's using the bathroom. And David immediately recognizes the man. That's Saul, alone, vulnerable. And for David's men, this is too much. Like, David, we're going to use the same type of reasoning Saul had used before. We're just going to assume this is the will of God, and God's delivered him into your hands, and you take your sword, and you go kill him. In fact, you don't even have to do anything. Just say the word, and we'll do it for you. It was so easy. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. So here's yet another question. This is question number four, if you're keeping track. Will God's king wait on the Lord's timing? Will God's king wait on the Lord's timing? David wouldn't have even needed to lift a finger. He could have just commanded his men, but he waits on the Lord's timing. He is not willing to kill Israel's divinely anointed, duly appointed king because he fears the Lord. That is the standard for God's king. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord's timing. So let me ask you a question. Do any of us pass this test? I mean, you know the answer, right? We want to be in charge of ourselves. We want some power. We want some authority over our own life. But do we have the character that a king requires? I think we all know the answer. Wait on the Lord. We don't want to wait for anything. And by the way, when I say we, I really mean we. I mean, think about the way that we behave in the church. We're preaching. We're praying. The church isn't growing numerically like we'd like to see. And so what are we tempted to do? I'm going to change the message. I'm going to shave off some of the rough edges of the way that we do church, so maybe we'll get some more people in the door. And instead of asking God how he wants us to operate and trusting him to bring the harvest in his own time, we begin to put our finger on the pulse of the world's culture, and we make these tiny compromises because we're not willing to wait on the Lord. What about you? Do you wait on the Lord's timing, teenager? you wait on the Lord's timing when it comes to your romantic relationships? Mom's telling you to be patient. Dad's telling you you need to be cautious. You know they're right, but you're afraid. You feel like, hey, I'm never going to meet anybody better than this, and I feel like you know, my life is going to end if I don't move forward. And so what do you do? You sneak around, and you create a whole secret life, and you're cut off from your family, and you can barely even pray without being overcome with conviction. And it's all because you just couldn't wait on the Lord. What about you, men? You wait on the Lord, you're working your fingers to the bone, but you just can't seem to get ahead financially, and there's always more month left over than money, and you're getting impatient as you see the guys you went to school with buy a new house or buy a brand new boat or something like that, and so you begin to take matters into your own hands, and you, you abandon the timing of the Lord, and you begin to work all the time, and you're always working an angle, and you're always pushing for more and more and more, and you stop being generous, and you start being stingy. You're not faithful with your giving anymore. You're never there for your kids. You've got no time left over for your wife, and, and then you start to reach your financial goals, and finally, when you do, you realize everybody else is gone, and you're alone. Why? Because you haven't been waiting on the Lord. Listen, I'm not saying, folks, listen to me. This is so important. I'm not saying, oh, you failed. You failure. Go back and take the test and do better. That is not the point of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we need a better king. 
we need to step down off of the throne of our own lives and realize, you know what? We do fail the test because I am not designed to be the king of my own life. I need a better king than me. Later on, David's heir is going to pass the test again. He was tested in greater ways than anyone else. Uh, Matthew, in the fourth chapter of his gospel, describes a time that the Spirit of God told Jesus to go out in the wilderness to be tested by the devil. In a moment of human weakness and hunger and exhaustion and exposure, a moment in which Jesus must have been weary of the great task to which his father had sent him, the devil goes, hey, let's go up to this high mountain. I'm going to show you the kingdoms of the world. And you could have them all right now. Jesus is the son of God. He can't sin, but he is a human man. And he felt the pool. He felt the, the desire welling up in his human heart. That was a powerful temptation. But when he was tested and when he was assailed by the attacks of the enemy, he said, I'm satisfied in my father. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to wait on the timing of the Lord. When offered a shortcut, he chose to lay hold of suffering instead of grasping for glory. He remembered that the cross precedes the crown. So in a moment, friends, when you and I would have failed, King Jesus passed the test. So question one from Keilah, will he lay down his life for God's people? Yes. Question two, will he rely on the guidance of the Lord? Answer, yes. Question three, will he seek encouragement from the world, from the Lord rather than the empty things of the world? Yes. Question four, will he wait on the Lord's timing? Yes. And then question five from, again, from En Gedi. Will he wait on the Lord's justice? Will he wait on the Lord's justice? You remember what David said? He confronted King Saul. He held up his piece of his robe, symbolizing the fact that, once again, Saul's kingdom had been torn from him. And he says, what does he say? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. But I'm not going to touch you, Saul. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm entrusting myself to the justice of the Lord. David was willing to wait on the justice of the Father, and so is David's heir. He even asked the Father, forgive them, Father. Forgive the beatings of the whip. Forgive the nails. Forgive the cross. He even entrusted himself to the justice of the Father to the point of death on the cross. You know, again, we sit here and we think, you know, the best thing for me would be to have freedom from all constraints and be able to rule myself. And listen, what I'm saying, folks, is if you test yourself, you will realize you are not worth, worthy to be the king or the queen of your own life. You need a better king. You need a king that passes the test. And I'm telling you, there's only one that does that, and that's King Jesus. There's only one person. And so what I'm saying is that we need to stop running away from him like Adam and Eve in the garden. Like, where are you? The Lord says, well, I was afraid and I hid myself from you. I didn't trust you, so I ran away. I didn't believe you were good. I didn't believe you were for me, so I avoided you. But, beloved, you need to know that Jesus is the king who passes the test. He's wonderful. He's supremely good. He is kind and he is loving and he is patient and Better than even you could do. He is better at, at, at ruling, and he should rule your life today. So my question is, 
when are you going to step down off the throne and give your life to King Jesus? You don't need to know what's around the corner. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't, you don't need any of those things. You just need to trust the king. When are you going to trust him with that? When are you going to trust him with his guidance on your career? When are you going to trust him when it comes to your marriage? When are you going to trust his lordship when it comes to your kids? When are you going to trust him when it comes to your parents? You don't need a King Saul. You don't need the king that's head and shoulders above the rest and can dominate his enemies because he's going to fail you every time. And you don't need to be in charge of yourself. You need King Jesus, friends. You need a king with character. You need a king who passes the test. Would you pray with me now? Father, we want to thank you for the goodness and the glory of your king. David just gives us this glimpse of, of what you want for your people. A king who sacrifices his own safety for, for them. A king who seeks your will. A king who finds encouragement in you. A king who waits on your timing and waits on your justice. Lord, we wouldn't be that type of ruler. And so we wanted this, this moment, we want to submit to your king, King Jesus. And say, we trust you, Jesus, better than we trust ourselves. Father, I pray that right now your spirit would move and that you would work in the hearts of your people today. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.